Okay, so in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 is where we're going to start. Now, you might remember that what we did, what, what, what happened just above this event is that Peter, speaking on behalf of all the disciples, said to Jesus, you are the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was at that point that it was clear that the disciples recognized that Jesus was not just a great man and a great prophet, uh, but he was indeed the Messiah. And immediately after he, he, he said this, Jesus had committed to Peter some important things of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And also what happened is that, is that uh, he told them, don't be talking about this, because he was very much part of the ministry of silence at this point, that this was for the disciples to know. There was no longer the proclamation to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. That was before the, the unpardonable sin. Now we are after the unpardonable sin. This is the last year of Jesus' life. If you missed that, that's all on the website uh, uh, that, that covers all of this and what happened on that event, that long day of, of the unpardonable sin. So, If you look in in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Okay, so in verse 21, you see that right now that they have now identified Jesus that, hey, we understand that you are the Messiah. It is now that he starts to reveal to them his plan. It wasn't before that. And that's why it says, from that time, Jesus started to do this. So Jesus started to reveal to them, in detail, the plan for for His coming crucifixion and resurrection. It happened at this time when they recognized Him to be the Messiah. And He's speaking plainly to them. So He says, from that time, Jesus began to show the disciples. And then he speaks very clearly, if you look at this, this is not in parables. Remember what it said. He only spoke to the Jewish masses at this point in parables because of after the unpardonable sin, it said he didn't speak to them without a parable. But to his disciples, to the twelve, he would explain all things. And now he's speaking very plainly. As it says in verse 21, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Look how clear it is. I mean, you couldn't have a more explicit sentence. There's no other way to interpret this. This is very clear. This is not a story. This is not a parable. This is not an allegory. He is speaking very plainly. Now, whether they understood it or not, is another question. And we're going to see later on that they understood parts of this, other parts, it took them totally off guard when, when he did end up being killed. It took them off guard. But at this point, he's speaking very plainly. So keeping your finger there in Matthew chapter 16, I want you to turn over to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And you will read the same verse in Mark chapter 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. After three days rise again. The reason I'm emphasizing after three days rise again is 
because we're going to come back to that. And then the, the next verse says, and he was stating the matter plainly, explicitly, clearly. This was not a parable. So Mark also notes that you couldn't have been clearer here. He's saying it very plainly. No parable here. But, but let's look again at this verse. He says, in, in, in verse 31, he said, And after three days, rise again. Let's turn back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. The end of the verse says, Be raised up on the third day. Not after three days, but on the third day. So be raised up on the third day, so that he would be killed and be raised up on the third day. He would be killed on a Friday. He would be dead all of Saturday. He would rise up on a Sunday. That is the third day. The number of hours in the ground was only from about near sundown. It wasn't sundown yet on Friday, because had it been sundown on Friday, their Saturday starts at sundown. So it had to be before sundown on Friday. He's, he's on, in the ground till Sunday morning early just as the sun was coming up, or just before the sun was coming up, just before that, just at that point, once that sun was coming up, he rose from the grave. So if you look at it, the number of hours that he's actually in the ground is about 36, not 24 times 3. But you will see here that he says he will raise up on the third day. The other passage says after three days. How could it be after three days? And we will go over this in detail when we talk about Jesus' resurrection. But the two terms scripturally are synonymous. And they were synonymous not just in the Old Testament, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. There's lots of examples where people will say after so many days or, or on the X number of days. And people get confused by this and they say, therefore Jesus had to have been crucified on a Thursday. Some people go back and say he had to have been crucified on a Wednesday because Jesus said three days and three nights, like Jonah. But in fact... The three days and three nights is also synonymous to on the, on the third day. Because any part of a day, even if it's of a nanosecond of a day, it counts as a day. Just like a, a, a person can be, can be, say, one year old and, and, 300 and, and one year and 300 days old, and you say, how old are you? Well, I'm one. It's not until you, start, you hit the second year that you start saying two. You see what I mean? We have the same sort of conventions in certain ways that we speak, but this carries through from the Old Testament. And because of that, some people are really confused on when Jesus died. Jesus had to have died on the Sabbath day. Had to have died. And because this was a high holy Sabbath, the Passover day, and he had to die before sundown, before he enters into that Saturday. It had to be just as the lamb would be killed. Had to have been on a Friday. And... And, and so forth. But you see the same pattern, and that explains it a little bit for you, but we'll get back to that more at his resurrection. The other thing he's speaking very clearly, so if we go back to the Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, look how clearly he says, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. Very clear what city this is going to happen in. No mistake about it. He says he's going to suffer many things, not just one thing or two things, many things he's going to have to end up suffering. Many things. And who's going to do it? He says the elders the chief priests, and the scribes. These are all the people, the religious people, who have dedicated their lives to bringing forth the things of God to the people. These are the very people that he's going to suffer at their hands. Very clearly he says this. And then he says, 
and be killed. So there was no mistake about it. Jesus was very clear. I've had some, some people come to me and say, Jesus didn't really know what was going to come of him. He didn't know that he was going to be killed. I'm like, huh? I mean, look, Jesus very clearly knew what was going to become of him. He says he would be killed and raised up on the third day. That this is what was going to happen to him. I was speaking to another man last week. He says, well, you know, Jesus, it was just self-fulfilling prophecy. He said, oh, really? How do you self-fulfill that you're going to be born in Bethlehem? How do you self-fulfill who your mother's line is going to be? How do you self-fulfill how you're going to be killed? How do you self-fulfill resurrection from the dead? How do you do this? So, anyways, it's amazing what nonsensical comments will come out regarding certain things. Jesus was very clear about this. And then it says in verse 29, I'm sorry, in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 16, look at the next verse. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, that this shall... This shall never happen to you. So that sounds like a pretty noble thing. Peter, not in front of the other, other 11 disciples, but just takes him aside. Peter takes him aside, and it says that, that he began to rebuke him. This word rebuke takes with it something physical. In other words, you will physically be restrained. It's the same word in the Greek that was actually used when a person was going to be arrested. They would physically prevent a person from moving, from going where the person wanted to go. He says, this will never happen to you. Not going to happen. He said that uh, uh, God forbid it. God forbid it, Lord. God forbid it, Lord. (laughs) Really interesting. Jesus, just uh, Peter, just above, had been the one to proclaim, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He clearly knew him to be the Son of God, the Messiah. Who rebukes the Son of God, the Messiah? Well, clearly Peter does. And he corrects him, taking God's name. But you can understand this in the sense that Peter didn't want this to happen to Jesus. You know, and, and, and this, this happens if you're, if you're traveling with, say, some speaker and... and uh, Somehow you, you want to look out for this person's good. You care, it carries their bags. You, and, you know, people come up. You, you start shielding them. I remember I went to India and I was the, going to be the speaker for, for five days at this Christian youth conference. And there were these crowds of people that come up. Men on the street see somebody who's important. And they start coming up. And the people who had invited me are physically pushing the people away from me. And I'm like... You know, I want to say you don't have to do that, it's okay, but they were actually meant for my good because they realized what could happen to me more than I realized it. They lived in that culture. So they wanted to make sure that these people weren't just going to just overrun me. And so Peter, in his zeal, is saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And... and uh, um, in verse 23, Jesus turns to Peter, but, but let me, there's one little passage. Keep your finger here. In, in Matthew chapter 16, turn back to the Mark portion, and you see that it says, um, in, in verse 32, it says, so this is Mark chapter 8, verse 32, and he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So, the, the picture that you have here is Peter draws him aside from the other eleven, rebukes him saying, this should never happen. I'm not going to let this happen to you. In the Mark portion, we never see what Peter rebuked him about. But in the Matthew portion, he tells us that he rebuked him saying, I'm never going to allow this to happen to you. What, 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 so what Mark reveals is that Jesus looked back at his disciples and then turned toward Peter and started saying what he was saying. So in other words, those two are off alone. Peter's rebuking him. Before he rebukes Peter in return, he looks at his disciples as if, these are my sheep. How could you be saying that I should not die for them? He looks back, and then he turns to Peter. And so let's turn back to the Matthew portion. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Remember just above, Jesus had said, said uh, uh, Your name is Peter, small stone and a pump. Has Jesus forgotten Peter's name 30 seconds later that he calls him Satan? This is the one who just proclaimed, your name is Peter. And he turns to him, he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. So Jesus does this because what was Satan's desire? Satan would love to have Jesus killed, but not in that way. Not in Jerusalem, on that particular day, under these particular circumstances, because that's exactly what was prophesied to happen. And Peter was, was taking upon himself the very things that Satan wanted, to prohibit Jesus from, having, from going through this. So Jesus looks at him, can you imagine? Imagine the Lord of all the earth calling you Satan? You know, that's got to kind of hurt. You know, this is really strong. But you know, it's interesting that God deals with people according to who they are. Peter, we see, was a fairly gregarious sort of person. He sees Jesus walking on the water. He says, call to me that I could come out to you too. The other eleven don't. Peter was the one who was stepping out all the time. You don't see Jesus going around to, to John the one who speaks of love, the one who is, who, who, who is really affectionate and calling John Satan. So what you see is that Jesus deals with people according to who they are. And, and uh, uh, so he turns to him, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You're a barrier to me. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Oh, you mean God has some interests? I thought everything was about me and my life. You know, God loves me and He wants whatever's best for me, which means that whatever I want, right? He's speaking about God has some interests here. God has an interest in my life and what I do. This was only after His looking back at the other eleven. Peter saying, I will not allow you to go through this. 
Peter said, I will physically restrain you myself from going through this. It's not going to happen to you. And that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He looks back at his disciples. He says, I've got to do this. This is for the ones that I love. He said, it is God's interest for me to go through this. Did you know God has an interest in your life that may not be in tune with everything that you want? You may want to marry a particular person. Well, God has an interest in that. You may want to go a particular place. God has an interest in that. It's not all about me and everything that I want. Where people quote this verse that Jesus said that He wanted to give us life and life abundantly. And so that means He wants us to have fun. He wants us to be in the place of God's interest. And there's where you'll have life. Then Jesus goes on and He starts to explain in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. This is the cost of discipleship. This is not the cost of salvation. Salvation has been paid by Jesus Christ. This is not talking about the cost of salvation. This is, there is nothing that we can do to warrant our salvation. It is not according to deeds, lest any man should boast. This has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is something that we acquire based upon faith in the finished work and payment of Jesus Christ on the cross and His resurrection on our behalf. That is what salvation is. If you've not come to the point where you've said, Jesus, come into my life, come into my life, then you, you, you have not taken that step. We are not talking about that step here. That is a prerequisite before you can ever talk about discipleship. There has to be an acceptance of His work, His finished work on the cross. And just because you were born in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. This is something that you have to take on yourself. This is the cost of discipleship. Discipleship is willingness to follow Jesus Christ. He said, here is the cost of discipleship. Verse 24. Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. What do you mean, come after you and follow you? Where are you going? Well, duh, I just told you. I am going to Jerusalem. I am going to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests, at the scribes, and I am going to be killed. And I'm going to rise again. Follow Me. It was right after he was very clear and as explicit as he could be about what his suffering was going to be that he said, follow me. And then he says, if anyone wishes to come, in verse 24, if anyone wishes to come after me. So it's not like anybody puts a gun to your head and says, you have to go. You have to go. Uh Uh-uh. It's up to you. It's up to you. Discipleship is up to us. If we wish 
to be disciples. Nobody is keeping you back from being a disciple. Nobody is making you be a disciple. Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? And this is why. So be not so surprised that you meet people that say they're Christians, that they've accepted Jesus as Lord, but you see no substantive difference in their life between people of the world and someone following Jesus. Don't be surprised. Jesus said, this is what it is. You can be saved accepting His death, accepting His resurrection by faith, and never choose to be a disciple. Here, if you, want, if you do wish to be a disciple, here's what you have to do. You can't say, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus. You can't without doing these things. Jesus said, this is what it takes to be my disciple. You've got to want to be my disciple. If anyone wishes to be my disciple, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He must deny himself. That means there are things that I want, that I want for myself, that I must deny. Let me speak in practical terms. I rise up early in the morning to pray. Nobody makes me rise up early in the morning. As long as I show up for my class, which I teach at 11 a.m., I'm good to go. But I rise up early in the morning. I deny myself sleep. Jesus doesn't deny me that sleep. I deny myself that sleep because I want to be with Him. Denying oneself of something that we have every right to have. Denying myself something. There are places that I do not go, that I choose not to go, because I want to follow Jesus. And I know that that would disrupt my walk in following Him. There are things that I purposefully do not look at. I deny myself, even though my flesh would like it. I deny myself because it would start to sever the closeness of my relationship to Him. It does not risk my salvation. That's already been bought. Nobody can take that away. That's been purchased. But it would deny me of the closeness. And so I refrain from certain things. That means that I don't click on certain things on my computer. I deny myself because I want to follow Him. It is self-denial. Self-denial is very much a part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is self-denial. It means that there are things that I don't buy, even though I want them, because I have to dedicate a certain portion of my income to His service. Nobody takes that from me. Nobody. I do with it what I want. But it is self-denial, because I want to see the going forth of His kingdom. Because Jesus teaches me to be generous. So I go without certain things. That is self-denial. Am I entitled to it? Absolutely. Nobody takes it from me. You are entitled to everything you have. And nobody will take it from you. But discipleship is self-denial. Jesus said it. If you want to come after me, you want to be my disciple, here's the first step. Self-denial. 
You give up the things that are precious to you in order to do things that are in God's interest. God can speak to you whatever that might be. Whatever that might be. Then I have to live with less than I could very well live with because of self-denial. I've taken certain steps I've taken certain steps because of self-denial. Certain steps because of self-denial. They cost me something. Self-denial should cost you something. Don't offer up to the Lord that which costs you nothing. I was just speaking to a, a young man And this young man wants assistance to go down the mission field. And what I will approach him with is I'll be glad to help you. But how much money have you in the bank? And how much of that money that you have in the bank are you willing to put forth toward your mission trip? Or you just want the church to pay for this because you're so noble, you're going out. Give me a break. Put forth something that costs you before you start placing that upon the church. Put forth something that costs you something. This is what I put upon Christian parents. You will fly your, ch- your child to Aspen to go skiing. But when it comes time for them to go to a, on a mission trip, you want them to write letters and send it out to people to ask for money. How about as their father, you pay for that? Because you can pay for them to go to Aspen. And how about... Young man or young woman, you have money in the bank, you want to save up for a rainy day or save up for something, how about taking a portion of that and putting it forward toward your mission trip? Why not put forth something that costs you something? Self-denial. This is the first step in being a disciple. Then he says, the next thing is, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. This is identification with cross. He tell him to take up his cross. Jesus was the one who was going to hang on the cross. This is identification with the sufferings of Christ. This is identification with the sufferings of Christ. And follow me. When I first became a believer, the young man who shared Christ with me gave me uh, uh, the book Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot. And I read... Here I was, and I had heard stories of of people who, you know, they would die to confess that they they were Christians. And I never understood this. I thought, well, just say you're not a Christian. And then the people go away, just say you're a Christian. I mean, why do you want to die? I read through Great Gates of Splendor, and then I realized what it is. What is the cross? Why you cannot just say, well, I'm not a Christian today, and get past it, and then the next day say, I'm a Christian. Because discipleship, discipleship, salvation will let you do that, but discipleship does not. Discipleship says that you take up your cross. It's identification with the suffering of Christ. Then I understood what Christ calls us to. Identification with the sufferings of Christ. And follow me. Jesus said, follow me. I'm going to be killed. Follow me. Follow me. 
This is the cost of discipleship. It starts with self-denial, and then it, it is identification with the sufferings of Christ. It will affect my career. It will affect your career. People will say things. But you must identify yourself with Christ if you want to be a disciple. There's a cost in discipleship. There's a cost. And he says, follow me. It may result in death. And this is why, as a parent of children whom I love, I have prayed all the time. I pray over my children. And their pictures are on the wall, right, where, where, where I kneel to pray every day. And I say, Father, let me never stand in the way of you sending them wherever you want them to be. Because the biggest hindrance to Christian missions is Christian parents. I never want to stand in the way of where you want to send them. Wherever you send them, may I not stand in the way. Because there's a cost. People say, oh, you know, you, is it safe in Jerusalem living there? I don't know if it's safe. What, what does that have to do with it? That's not the question. My daughter's 29 years old, as if a 29-year-old is going to listen to me anyway. But even when she was 16, she was there. That's where her heart was. That's where God was sending her. That's not the question. Is it, what's God's interest? What's God's interest? It's not the place of safety. It's God's interest. Oh, she's so far away. Don't you want, you know, to have your grandchild near you? And yeah, I'd love, you know, if she lived nearby and I could have the grandchild over every day. I'd love it. But it's not about my interests. It's God's interests. Christian parents want this child around them so they can have the grandchildren. It's selfishness. It's not discipleship. Discipleship is God's interest. God's interest. It starts with self-denial. And then, it start, and then it's identification with the sufferings of Christ. And then it's willingness to follow Him. Next week we'll talk about the rewards of following Him and the loss of not following Him. Let's pray. Abba, Father, Thank you so much for your word that challenges us. The words of our precious Lord Jesus that challenge us. Father, I pray for these young people. If someone here does not know you, that in their time of quiet this day, they would invite you into their hearts. Father, I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that even now, they would repeat with me, Lord Jesus, forgive me, for I am a sinner. Come into my life. Wash me clean. And make me your child, I pray. And if that is you, who God is speaking to this day, come and see me afterward. And Father, I pray for the others here that have called themselves Christians, that have called themselves 
children of God. Father, I pray that you would stir their hearts to wish to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And that they would learn to deny themselves, deny themselves sleep in order to follow you. Deny themselves of fun times to get to bed earlier so that they could rise up and spend time with you. That they would learn to deny themselves of comforts, of money, of the things that they treasure that are entirely theirs, but so that they might see what it is to be a disciple. And Father, I pray that you would cause them to identify with the sufferings of Christ, with being a follower of Jesus Christ, and that they would follow Him to death. Father, I pray you would so do that in these young people's lives. And that many of these young people will follow you right to their death. In the name of Jesus. Amen.